Good morning. Thanks. <laughs> it's, good to, it's good to see some of your wonderful faces here this morning. We are continuing in our November mini-series called The Seeds of the Kingdom, and we're looking at the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13. So if you have a Bible with you or if you want to grab one of those pew, buys, uh, pew Bibles directly in front of you, um, we're looking at Matthew 13, where Jesus is depicting some of the realities of the kingdom of heaven in sort of ancient fable format. So last week we looked at the parable of the sower, a fairly familiar parable, which was kind of an introductory parable that we see Jesus actually using in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, directly after, or pretty quickly after, the Pharisees accuse him of of doing healings and exorcisms and, and whatnot by the power of the prince of demons, which isn't exactly the thing you wanna say to your God among you. And last week, in that parable, Jesus demonstrated then what the appropriate response to the word looks like, what the, the appropriate response to the word being sown, what that looks like. And it's this, to hear, to understand, and then to bear fruit for his kingdom. So the crowds then are faced with a choice to make. They have to make a decision about how they're going to receive this. What are they going to think about it? Will you seek to hear and to understand? Or will you reject it? And in so doing, reject your God and king among you. In other words, this is a kingdom reality. And whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, starting then at verse 24 in, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells them another parable. And this time the parable begins with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, which is the first of a few of them that start with this phrase. So now he's really getting into it, okay? Now he's really getting into it. And this is a parable that the disciples later on have to ask him to explain, which I find really comforting. Because hearing doesn't necessarily mean that you understand everything. The disciples would hear Jesus, but they wouldn't necessarily understand everything. They're following him because they understand that he's worthy of paying attention to. They understand that much. He's worthy of paying attention to. They're seeking to understand. And Christ has promised us that when we seek him, we will find him. So what does he want to unravel for us about the kingdom here in this particular passage? What mystery does he want to unravel? We're going to be looking at verses 24 to 30, and then we're going to jump ahead to 36 to 43 when he explains this parable. So starting at verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed, se- sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring into my barn. And then over to verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Okay, so we've got, we've got a little bit of continuity, right, with the previous parable that we talked about last week. There's some similar language here. We again have a sower, and he sowed good seed into his soil. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed sowed the wheat, or sowed among the wheat, and went away. Okay, so this would be at the point in the parable where all the people in the crowds would start booing and yelling and shouting because of how unjust and how unfair and how horrible this parable has just become. Why? Because, again, this was familiar imagery for these folks, okay? Jesus was talking predominantly to lower-class kind of people, farmers, herdsmen, children, anybody that would seek to understand. And these weeds, or these tares, as they're often called, were the worst kind of curse that a farmer would need to deal with, even just on a regular basis. William Barclay and Craig Keener both explain that these particular types of weeds are a type of ryegrass called bearded darnel, and they so closely resembled the wheat that it was pretty well near impossible to tell the two apart. When both had matured, or, or headed, when the ears came, then it was easier to distinguish. But before that, you, you couldn't really separate them. You couldn't tell the difference. And the roots of the wheat and the tares were so stinking intertwined with each other and so deep that you couldn't actually pull up the weeds without tearing the wheat out with them. You can see how devilish this is. The image, then, of someone deliberately sowing this kind of stuff, this kind of, this darnel, into someone else's field was one of the worst things that you could do to someone. Still today, actually, in places like India and others, one of the direst threats that you can make to somebody is, I'm going to sow bad seed in your field. It's horrible. People live off of the produce of their fields. One of the most basic staple food item in Palestine was bread. So it would have made good sense to these listeners that anybody who would dare to do this should appropriately be called an enemy. I mean, come on, it was written down actually in Roman law as a crime because even the Romans understood how horrible this was. It was forbidden. So then what needs to be done about this? What needs to be done? After questioning the master on how the weeds got there, the servants ask him, well, do you want us to go and pull them up? Should we get rid of them? Should we eliminate them? Like, we can do that. Let, let's, let's take a weed whacker to them. Let us do this. But he said no. He said no. Why, for goodness sakes, not? Why would he say that? Because of this. Because while you are pulling up the weeds you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. That, I want to argue this morning, is the mystery being revealed in this parable, the mystery of the kingdom that we need to understand and that Jesus wants us to understand 
that the two need to grow together. And in order to grasp this, I want to highlight five realities that we see in this parable. There are more, but we're going to highlight five. Five realities of the kingdom that we need to be aware of, which help us to grasp this mystery, that lead us to understand it a bit better. First, based on Jesus' explanation to the disciples, the sower here is the Son of Man. It's Christ himself. And he has sowed good seed into his field. Okay, he sowed good seed. So the responsibility or the cause of evil does not fall onto the Son of Man. It does not fall on the Master. The servants question him and, and ask him, how did this happen? But it wasn't him. An enemy did this is what we get for an answer. It's all we get for an answer, but it has an important implication. God did not do the evil work. The Master did not do it. As Frederick Bruner puts it, no evil was laid upon the wor world by God's hand. Genesis 1 tells us that God created and he declared it good. Jesus defends that same claim. And as God continues his creation work and recreation work, he only sows what is good. So then the, the second truth then is this. This good master has an enemy. And this enemy is specifically his enemy, the sower's enemy. We saw this enemy in the first parable, remember? Sweeping, sweeping the seeds off of the footpath. And now, he's spoiling the good field of the farmer by throwing his own seeds into the mix. We don't get a whole lot more about who this enemy is, where he came from, why he's the sower's enemy, all that. Jesus simply shares with us that this is the enemy's doing. He is the agent of evil. And God's work throughout history has been strongly opposed then by this enemy. None of the early disciples, none of them would have ever denied this, that there is an evil one who seeks to thwart the purposes of God. None of them would have ever denied that based on these parables that Jesus shares, us, shares with us. Because thirdly, Although the enemy is not able to root out the good seed, he would love to, but he's not able, although he's not able to actually root out the good seed that the farmer has sown, he is able to sow evil seed, bad seed, in the middle of all of the wheat and so cause confusion and chaos. That's what he does best. Because notice how even the method is the same. Both are sowing in this parable. Both are sending out a, a word, a message. He seeks to be an alternate voice. He finds alternate yet similar ways to cause confusion. Because if he can't keep the seed from implanting into the soil, as in the first parable, then his second attempt is going to be to distract the workers by overwhelming them with evil and pushing them to tear out the Darnell themselves. Or even worse, to cause confusion with their perception of who the sower is. Wait, Master, didn't, didn't you sow good seed into your field? How did this happen? If you're a good farmer, why are there so many bad seeds in this field? Why would you allow this to happen, and why wouldn't you want to fix it? If you're a, a good master of love and goodness and compassion, how did this happen? Why are both still allowed to grow? Why would you not do everything in your power to, to root out this evil? Shouldn't it be your greatest desire to do that? 
the enemy cannot uproot evil, or the enemy cannot uproot the good soil or the good seed, but he can certainly cause chaos and confusion. As Bruner again puts it, if the enemy cannot strike the root, he will smash the fruit. If he cannot hinder faith, he can corrupt love. He can corrupt, actually, the greatest truth in this parable, which is, fourthly, that the master will not let anything happen to the wheat. His greatest fear, as he says to the servants, is that you might uproot the wheat as well. In other words, there is no collateral damage allowed here in God's field. No hurting of the one in order to root out the other. As Jesus says in John 10, 29, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. The Master will not risk the wheat. Because of his care for the wheat, he must allow the tares to continue growing as well. He has no choice but to wait until both the wheat and the tares are fully grown, and then the harvesters can separate them. Which means then that fifthly, there's a hold put on judgment and a weight on the purging of evil in this world. The mystery of this kingdom, again, is that these two must grow together. And the master has to wait until both good and evil mature before he can come with fire. So there isn't an immediate judgment, again, which is what all the Israelites would have been expecting. You know, when the Lord returned, when the Messiah finally came back, there was going to be judgment. There was going to be a separation. That was the familiar language. There was going to be a separation of the wicked and the righteous. There would be freedom for those that were, that were held under oppression. This, these were symbols for the end times. The wicked would burn and the righteous would shine in the glory of the kingdom. That's what even John the Baptist expected, which is why when he's in prison, he kind of has to send his disciples to, to ask Jesus, are you actually the one? Because you're not doing what, what we expected you to do. This is actually, this, this language, this symbolism is still actually the way that Jesus speaks of it. But here he tells us that the growth of God's kingdom and the hostility against it need to grow together yet for a time. Starting right there in Israel and then branching out from there. And the implication then is that his servants who are working in his field, his field workers, need to endure this as the kingdom continues to unfold in history and to trust that a harvest will come in the end. This is the mystery, again, of the kingdom that Jesus knows we need to be aware of. He knew we needed to be aware of this and that we need to hold on to. Because for we who now work in his field, for all of us who are now servants and workers in his field, how do we need to understand now our work within it? With that understanding of, of that mystery, what does it mean then for us to know this as modern-day missionaries, priests, and prophets who are working in his field and even today, who are called to sow the seeds of this kingdom? What does this now look like for us? Well, based on these five truths that we've just outlined, 
we first need to understand something of this opposition that we're up against. As one of my regent profs once put it, the enemy is always right on the heels of Jesus. At any renewal movement, there's always attack. Every good choice you make for the kingdom, every sacrifice or or season of spiritual growth, even after a baptism, there's going to likely be temptation and trial. Remember what happened with Jesus right after his baptism. Where does he go? He gets led into the wilderness to be tempted by who? The enemy. We are in a spiritual battle, as Pastor Ed recently spent six weeks sharing with us about. There's always more going on than what we can see. There's this bigger narrative that we're a part of, and we need to have the prophetic imagination to live into that. The enemy will do everything he can, especially in seasons like this, to make us forget, abort, or ignore this mission that we're called to, this calling that has been given to us as the church, which we spoke about last week. It's the same vision, mission, and commission as Christ. And if we don't don't recognize that evil is growing at just the same pace and strength as the good, then we're really going to struggle to understand why things happen the way they do. Because consider this. When does the church tend to become a little lukewarm, apathetic, to forget the mission that it's on, to ignore the calling that's given to it, to to forget to spur one another on and, and fail to encourage one another in this mission? When... When does that typically happen? When nobody thinks anything is wrong. That is perhaps, I think, one of the biggest issues that we face in the modern world as a Western church. This this shutting off of ourselves to evil and, and thinking that society is just getting better and better and better as long as we can get the right politician in and the right policies in place and if we can achieve again those idolatries of comfort, control, and certainty. If we've got all those things, then we're good, we're fine. But no. No, both are growing at the same time. As one scholar put it, we are always living in the best of times and the worst of times. Good is maturing, yes, but so is evil. Sometimes it's, it's obvious, but sometimes it's just really deceptive. For every good in society, there's often a sort of equal and opposite response in evil. There are incredibly positive things and incredibly horrific things happening simultaneously all the time. Take, uh, this is always a classic example, but take technology as a classic example. No one would ever say that technology hasn't brought incredible good into this world. But the fact that people are now finding the majority of their self-worth in how many thumbs-up hearts and comments that they can get on their overly filtered and unrealistic photos is something that we as a church need to lament. The fact that young women are actually going and getting plastic surgery now so they can look more like their filtered photos is horrific. If you get a chance, actually, I, I encourage you to watch it. It's a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, and it's gonna, it flushes out some of these evils that exist beneath, behind the screens. It's a commonly known fact that technology has dramatically increased anxiety and depression over the last decade, especially in, in young people since social media took off. That, it's a well-known fact. Dramatic increase. Dramatic increase. 
and yet nothing's changed. It's a well-known fact that, that our children are exposed to overly sexualized and almost pornographic music videos on YouTube, and yet the music industry and YouTube have done nothing about it. It's a well-known fact that, that pornography causes severe damage to relationships, intimacy, even biology. And yet the industry still grosses billions of dollars every month. We think that, that equality and, and, and feminism and these things have changed the world, and they have. But we don't realize that these other industries are doing the exact opposite. The greatest oppression in this world is, is still against women and children. Final example, don't worry, this isn't going to get too depressing, but <laughs> I recently read a, a National Geographic article on sex trafficking in India, and oh my goodness, this, this is the, the issue that just gets me really riled up. <laughs> you, know, it, like, you know those issues that just cause like a visceral reaction within you? I remember being in college and first encountering this conversation, and I just, yeah, I, I fell apart. And I, I was, this isn't the best pre-bedtime reading, but I was reading this article, and I figured, no, you know, I've, I've matured from college, I can read this, it's fine. But I, I finished the article, and I set it aside, and Danny and I were, were entering into our, our routine nighttime prayer, and we're praying, and I'm getting, I'm, I'm just getting more amped up as, as we're praying, and, and Danny's kind of doing this thing, like looking up at me, and what's going on, but um, I, it just started affecting me more and more and more as I was praying, and I, I felt, okay, I'm just going to pray what's on my heart, and it, it just wasn't helping, and finally I just said to Danny, okay, I just need to, I just need to go pray by myself. You know, you get to that point where you're just so amped up. I, can't, I just, need to, just need to go pray by myself, which is always code for I need to go yell at God for a second. And so I got out of the room, and, and I, all the anger just boiled up within me, and I just yelled at him, like, why, God? Why? Why do you allow evil to, per to continue? Why do you allow it to persist? Why don't you do something about it? How can you watch this happen? This impacts the whole world. Young girls being sold into slavery, like. How can you handle so much evil? There's also so much good. There's so much good. And then I remembered this passage. In order for the wheat to mature, evil must mature along with it. I don't understand why. It doesn't say... This is just what we're going to experience as the kingdom draws nearer and nearer. There is an enemy. And as the kingdom draws nearer and nearer, the fight gets more and more hostile. Because he will try in every way he can to make us demonize one another, to make us dehumanize one another, to suck the God-given life out of us and pit us against one another, to see, to see how far a human being can go to cause harm to another human being. 
And because of this, the world is not as it should be. It's broken, it's sinful, it's full of abuse. There's illness, there's cancer, an abundance of pain, oppression, persecution, unbelievable greed, tyranny, racism, never-ending war. What is the hope for us? What hope is there for us? For this world that, that like a cracked windshield just keeps showing new cracks all over the place. Typhoons, hurricanes, pandemics, increased political division, hostility between clans, matured tyranny and, and oppression. This has been a year where people have been looking around going, what the heck is going on? What's going on? We don't, we don't seem to have control over anything anymore. Where is the hope in this? Well, here's the thing. Control does not equate to hope. I say that again. Control does not equate to hope. Our hope is that we're not in control. Thank the Lord we don't have control over this. We are simply responsible to be good and faithful stewards within it. We, as the global church, as Christ's hands and feet are tasked with being the peacemakers in every season, the healers, the ones who empathize and understand, who storm the throne root of God with confidence in prayer, who participate in the mission to sow good seed, who are guided in all things by the Master, who wield that torch of faith, the torch of hope, in a world of despair. That's our role. We are servants in the good farmer's field. We are still to be at work in our master's field while aching for the world to be made right. While joining in the sufferings of our brothers and sisters around the world that suffer so much more than we do. Why, this is why Christ as king is still the most important, most essential, most relevant message for the church today. Because here's the hope. The master will not let anything happen to his wheat. He will protect it at all costs. He knows his sheep. His sheep call him by name and no one will snatch them out of his hands. Their end is secure. Their hope is certain. There will be a harvest. As Danny actually said the other day, God's love is bigger than all the evil in this world. Our present and our future are with him. We are called to be fishers of men, to gather in as many as we possibly can and then let him deal with the rest. We can sow the seeds of the kingdom knowing that the master has his eyes on us and will not let the enemy touch you or rip you up out of the soil. God in Christ is now acting as king on earth. His kingdom is intersecting into this world and so the pressure is on for the enemy and for any other kingdom that seeks to reject it or to oppose it. Which means that our prophetic witness is this. That the world will 
rest in the shalom of the king, where there's no more oppression or violence or pandemics or illness or human trafficking or hatred or devilish schemes to to outdo one another or dehumanize for selfish profit or comparison or shame or, or pressures to be good enough, where the enemy is forever and finally defeated, when he can't sow evil seed into the field anymore, where the world really is made new, And justice is served without any collateral damage for those who call on his name and who stand innocent under the blood of the Lamb. That is good news. May we be blessed with the ears to hear it and the eyes to see it. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.